Welcome to the New Books Network. Today I have the great pleasure to introduce Gabe Howard to you. He's written a very interesting book. It's called Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, and it has an interesting story. The naming of it, I'm going to save that for Gabe to tell you about. He's an extraordinary man who has a very interesting story to tell. He's an award-winning podcast host, author, and sought-after speaker. And above all, he's a frank, open, and honest person who has helped a lot of people. He said, because he's so honest and straightforward, that this never would have been possible if he hadn't been committed to a psychiatric hospital and diagnosed with a bipolar disorder in 2003. Um, he's talked on uh, a lot about this. Of course, he he talks about it in his book, which, by the way, was written uh, over a five-year period from, I believe it was 2014 to 2018, but everything is very, very current. And he's talked about his particular issue on the podcast that he hosts, Inside Mental Health Podcast. In addition, he's appeared in numerous publications, including Bipolar Magazine, WebMD, Healthline.com, and the Stanford Online Medical Journal. Uh, he's been a guest on several podcasts, The Mental Illness Happy Hour, The One You Feed, and Savvy Psychologist, and probably others. He's also appeared on the four major, major networks we have, ABC and BC, CBS and Fox. And in November, 2022, he had the distinct honor of speaking at Oxford University in England. So he has many, many um, accolades to his name. Uh, he's got an award from uh, NAMSI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Health and He's had some pretty impressive uh, people on his show, Dr. Phil McGraw, Alanis Morissetti, Jeanette McCurdy, and among many others. Um, he received a resolution from the governor of Ohio naming him an everyday hero. He lives in central Ohio with his wife, Kendall, and his miniature schnauzer he never wanted but couldn't live without. So with that, um, I'd like to get started. I do want to mention one other thing. I got to know Gabe uh, because we had quite a few email exchanges. And well, email isn't like meeting somebody in person. It was wonderful to be able to share a lot of thoughts with him. And he also shared a lot with me. So... Can you just start with, Gabe, can you tell our listeners how the book got its name? I, I found that to be very fascinating. So the, the the book got its name. So it's a compilation of articles that I wrote over a five-year period, like you said. And the, the internet is a funny place. And one of the things that the internet loves to do is trends. Things are very, very popular. And Several years ago, I mean, literally several years ago, a woman wrote an article called My Three-Year-Old is an Asshole. So she wrote a blog and and just, you know, this overwhelmed mother of a three-year-old was just like, look, my 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 child is 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 driving me insane and and likened it to why do we tolerate this? We would not tolerate this behavior from adults in our lives, we'd call them assholes. So uh, very, very well written, but it went viral. Uh, as you can imagine, this was this, this really connected with overwhelmed mothers and parents everywhere. And they just loved the frank honesty. And this started a trend. Everything was an asshole after that. You know, my husband's an asshole. My wife is an asshole. My boss is an asshole. My traffic is an asshole, et cetera. Well, I, I was a blogger. So I had to get in on the trend. That's how the internet works. So I wrote an article called, of course, 
mental illness is an asshole. Now, uh, fast forward many years later, a publisher is interested in, in publishing this an anthology. Uh, they they want to get it together. And, and the publisher says, okay, we're going to do all this stuff. And I'm, I'm going through the process and somewhat reluctantly, I might add, I'm going through the process. And the publisher says, we're going to call the book mental illness is an asshole. And I said, no, no, that's, that's not a good idea. We should not call the book mental illness is an asshole. And they're like, well, why not? And I said, well, you know, my my grandma won't like that. <laughs> that was that was my reason. Granny will not like it. And the the publisher said, "Look, this is what we're going to call the book, or you, you we cannot publish it. Right? We we know what we're doing. You got to have some faith in us." So I, I decided it was much rather I, I would much rather have the book out there and explain to my grandmother that it was not my fault. I was a I was a victim of the evil publishing industry uh, than not have the book out there. But the book came out, and I, I reluctantly showed my grandmother. I was like, "Look, here here's the book," and she's like. I love the title. And I was like, wait, what? I, I had a whole apology ready, right? I was, I was ready to fall on my sword, apologize, blame everybody and their brother. But, but no, she was like, I, I love the title. So, but grandma's got a, a swear word in it. She said, look, you know, it, when, 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 when people are scared, when people need information, when you're walking through, uh, you, you know, Walmart and you need a book that is going to grab your attention. That is going to give people hope. That's going to make people relate. That is the book that I would pick up. And uh, I was like, wow, I, I guess my grandmother understands marketing, which, which, you know, my grandmother has lived a very, very long time. She understands a lot of things that I don't give her credit for, but she loves the title. She's proud of the title. She's proud of me. And all in all, she agrees that some boring book called how to live with mental illness would just not have gotten the oomph of mental illness as an asshole. It's a great story. And I think with the title, you have to hear the story about your grandmother. So <laughs> I wanted to start with that. Uh, there's something that you said, you said a lot of things that are very important in the book, but I'd like to quote something and see uh, what your thoughts are about it now. I will admit to having some pretty incredible stories to tell about times I was manic, but I could have hurt someone or people. And those times are still affecting my life and the lives of others. Just because it was fun while doing it doesn't make it okay. Mania can be dangerous and life-threatening. There's a reason the stories of people who are manic are so engaging. They're filled with bad decisions, drama, and danger. Would you comment on that? I'm fond of saying that Mania has the best public relations team in the world because it doesn't seem to matter what the bipolar symptom of Mania does to a person, who it hurts, how it wrecks their lives. I mean, think of all the examples that we have, you know, blowing your entire paycheck and then not being able to pay your mortgage, getting fired from your job, uh, cheating on spouses, losing relationships, becoming, becoming disconnected with children and just on and on and on. I mean, those are just the examples that I literally pulled off of uh, the top of my head. Th these are, these are, these are life ruiners, right? This, this, these are things that, that people dwell on and are sad about and, and regret for years. And yet you ask the, the average person about mania and they light up They're like, oh, I had so much fun. It's like, do you not see the connection? Do you not see the connection between the thing that just devastated you and that you regret and mania? And the answer is often no, they don't see the connection at all. And for, for, for me, once I found that connection, I, I don't want to lie to people. Of course it felt good. A, a consequence-free environment where you feel like a literal God and behave like a literal God, of course that's going to feel good. But when you pull the lens back and look at the entirety of all the people that you hurt and all the damage that it costs and all the regret that you have, no. It, it, it's not so great anymore. And I want to be very, very clear on that point. Lots of things feel good in the moment. The question is, is, is that memory sustainable? Uh, I, 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 I love examples. And the example that I always use is everybody wants to tell off their boss. I, I, I really feel at some point, no matter how much you like your boss, there's always this moment where you just want to tell off your boss and make no mistake. It's going to feel great in the moment. Yeah, but then you're going to get fired. You're going to be branded unprofessional. Your colleagues are going to be like, wow, they can't even control themselves in a public setting. I just, the fallout of that is not worth the moment of telling off your boss. 
And that's really how mania is. Yes, it feels good in the moment. It's not a sustainable feeling. Yeah, it's it's very interesting how people are entertained by the stories, but I think that unless they're in it themselves or really touched closely by someone else's story who they are themselves um, connected with, I think they don't get it. It's just a it's just an entertaining story. So that's an uh, that's a fortunate. But it's also good that there are people such as you who who are willing to talk about this and how it's definitely not just one-sided. Um, I'm particularly interested in um, your candor and openness about your own mental illness. Um, it's brave and it's disarming at the same time, at least that was my reaction. I wouldn't say it is, but that's how I reacted to it. Since you've given me permission to ask you anything, which is very generous of you, um, and I also respect that, but I'm going to take you up on it. I'm interested in knowing how you became so open and uninhibited about your personal life. And I'm, I'm wondering, is it through therapy, medication, uh, or through identification with a parent, which would have happened pretty early, or something else, maybe something that I haven't thought about. I, I think it's really a hodgepodge of all of those things. It, the first thing that I want to remind people is obviously if I wasn't stable, I, I couldn't be this open because I, I wouldn't have the ability to modulate the fallout. And, and there is fallout in, in being this open, whether it's uh, social situations, so you know, social stigma, stereotypes, uh, answering offensive questions. I mean, I, I've stood on stage and people have raised their hands and they're like, well, how long have you been on disability? I'm like, well, I've never been on disability. And they're like, well, then you must not be very sick. And, and these are these are difficult questions to answer. But of course, if I just lash out, what, you think I'm a child? How could you think that that doesn't help my cause any? So it, it's funny the way that you worded the question, like did therapy and medication help you be so open and honest? Most people would think, well, no, he's just, you, you know, bold and no, no, no. Therapy and medication made me stable. Stability allows me to be open and honest. So I, I, I want to point out that being in recovery is a huge part of this, but now let's look at more practical reasons that I'm able to do this. I really feel very strongly that I was in harm's way largely because my parents didn't know that I was in harm's way. My parents were very engaged and loving and caring parents. I, I cannot make that more clear. So many people are like, okay, so tell me about your home life. Your dad was an alcoholic, right? Your, your mom beat you, lots of instability, right? You didn't have money. You, you lived in a flop house. It's like, no, no, my, 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 my dad worked. We were very stable. We lived in a, in a, in a house, we, in a nice neighborhood. We, I, I'm not saying that we were rich, but we were solidly middle-class. We were, we were blue collar, salt of the earth people. My mom being a stay-at-home mom, my, my dad being a, a, an over-the-road truck driver. And we had a good stable life. And yet- they did not recognize that their son was sick because they didn't recognize that their son was sick. They didn't get me help because they didn't get me help. This allowed bipolar disorder to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and ultimately that, that put me, these were huge risks that that's, that's, these were huge, huge risks. And when I was in, when I was trying to reach recovery, I attended a lot of support groups. I attended a lot of conferences. I attended a lot of fundraisers. And I would always hear these stories from these parents who would tell the story of their child who died by suicide. And, and I often thought, could this have been my parents? Could, could my mom and dad have been standing up there and said, well, you know, Gabe, our son was a giant of a man. And I just, and he was loud and he was gregarious and he was so funny and he loved Christmas. And then they would start to cry. Right. Because, you know, I'm, I'm gone. And then the guilt would seep in because they didn't know this was a big, big thing for me because I thought this was about education. I thought this was about the silence. And, and I thought this was about people not understanding because my parents did not understand or they would have gotten me the help that I needed. So that was a big, big thing too. But then let's look at a secondary. I, I went to my parents and I'm like, hey, look, I want to tell as many people as I can find that you guys screwed up. And I, I, I really, I, I kind of put it that way. I'm like, look, I want to tell all the mistakes that we made. And I really expected my parents to say no. 
I, I was kind of looking for an out because this is a, a challenging road to decide to walk down. And my mom and dad were like, do it, do it. If it saves one family from going through what we went through, totally worth it. Throw us under the bus. We can take it. Now they, they didn't think that I'd get this far. They, they, they've told me they might've reconsidered their answer. If, if they knew that, you know, I was going to host a podcast with, you know, millions of downloads and they were going to start getting emails, but, but in all seriousness, they, they don't regret it. They're just like, look, this, this saves lives. This starts conversations. This allows other families to say, Hey, this guy's family's a lot like ours and they've banded together. They've worked their stuff out. So that's really lucky, right? Because I could have come from a family. It's like, Hey, don't air the dirty laundry. Don't embarrass grandma. So all of those things combined. Plus, you know, look, this is my personality. I'm, I, I'm clearly loud and I don't mind public speaking and I, and I'm, I'm not shy and I have a good support system and I have permission. And I was lucky enough to get well, and I wanted to make sure that I, I utilized that time that I gained back because of that luck to do something positive. This is a question I just thought about, but I, I know that it's so prevalent in everywhere. It is bullying. Um, were you bullied when you were in um, a bipolar state or did you tend to bully others or maybe neither? I, I was very, very, very bullied. The first thing that I want to remind your listeners is that I have red hair. I being a child with red hair is is brutal. The jokes write themselves, uh, from failed abortion to carrot top to everything in between. Uh, I I was just just terrible. The, the next thing is I, I wore glasses. I had a very severe acne problem and I had a weight problem. I, I really felt at one point like whatever you could give a teenager so that, that he or she would be bullied. I had them all like they would just all existed in me. And it was a, it was a very, very difficult time. I don't know how bipolar disorder played into it, but I can tell you it wreaked absolute havoc on my self-esteem and my confidence level, which of course, bipolar disorder also exploits through suicidality and depression. So it, it's really amazing uh, that I was able to make it as, as far as I did uh, without just showing very huge outward symbols that may, or sorry, it, it's really amazing that I made it as far as I did without showing huge outward symptoms uh, that maybe would have been more difficult to ignore. But at the same time, I, I do want to also remind the audience that bipolar disorder is, is sort of a spectrum illness, right? You're not always depressed. You're not always manic. You're not always in the middle. You're not always grandiose. You're not always anxious. You're, you're not constantly symptomatic. You're just kind of moving back and forth on the spectrum, which means that sometimes you're, you're asymptomatic. You're right in the middle and everything is quote unquote, normal stereotypical. So it's, it's very difficult for the people around you to get a handle on what's going on with you, especially during your teenage years when kids are erratic anyway. It's bad. Yeah. It's a bad time, difficult time anyway. Uh, you have a, a small section in your book about the myths of depression. Is that something that's on the tip of your tongue? The what's I the specific it, question? Well, just about the myths. People think depression is this, the depression is that, it's all kinds of things. Um and I think this came to my mind because somebody was telling me that they they were feeling low, but they they said they didn't think they knew what depression felt like. And so we went through various possibilities and the person couldn't connect this emptiness with a feeling. He, if, I, emptiness was my word. So the myths about what it is, maybe. Well, it's always very difficult to discuss depression because it, it's so synonymous with sadness, even though depression and sadness are, are they, they have no relationship whatsoever. Uh, it, it's sort of like if everybody decided that, that ice cream and fried chicken were the same thing and, and people just, just sort of repeated this as a fact. It's like, oh, ice cream and fried chicken. They're the exact same thing. They're the exact same thing. And then only people in the know, people who have actually eaten ice cream and fried chicken are like, that's ridiculous ice cream and fried chicken have nothing to do with one another. They are completely separate foods in every imaginable way, but yet society for, for some inexplicable reason thinks they're the same. 
that's depression and sadness. They're, they're so completely different yet. The English language is a difficult language, right? It, cool can mean the temperature cool can mean that you are a awesome person. Uh, it, it just, it, it's, it, it gets messy. And I, I think this contributes to a lot of the misunderstanding because when somebody says I have depression or I'm depressed or I'm feeling depressed, we sort of enact the sadness protocol. Let's go out. Let's cheer you up. Let's, you know, let, let's distract you. Maybe you need a mental health day. Let's go out for the weekend. Let's get out of town. Are you, you know, you know what, this can wait till Monday when in actuality, they're describing a medical problem that, that needs a, a little more than just a day off. Uh, and, and people like me, even people who have experienced depression, we do it too. We do it too. I, I say so often, you know, I'm sad. And I, I actually mean I'm experiencing the symptoms of depression. I water it down as well. And I should know better. So I, I understand how we got here. But one of the biggest myths of depression is that depression, the mental illness, and sadness, the, the emotion are somehow related when in actuality, they're fried chicken and ice cream. That's interesting. Um, <clears throat> so you talk about a day in the life of somebody who is bipolar, me yourself in this case. Can you talk about what that's like? Because I did hear what you said about that you're very depressed or you're very manic or you're in between it or it's a fine day. But can you answer the question anyway, in spite of the fact that there's probably no super good answer? I, I, I love how you worded that. There's probably no super good answer because, of course, bipolar disorder, it, it, it's it's got symptoms and, and it, you know, it, it's medical in nature and, and you, you can look for signs. And of course you want to treat those symptoms and signs and manage it and learn coping skills. But of course they sit on top of a person. So it, it's sort of like deciding what color something is when you know, you're going to be dropping that into other colors. It's like, well, tell me about this color right here. And then you talk about that color and its properties, but before it can get out into the world, you have to mix it with another color. And everybody's like, well, you know, he told me all about that, but I'm not seeing it right. Because of course, what the public sees is bipolar disorder and a person. And what we tend to talk about on, on shows like this or in the medical literature is bipolar disorder devoid of a person. Bipolar disorder needs a carrier. It just can't exist all by itself. But that said, there are things that we can learn and we should learn and we should be aware of. The first thing is, is untreated bipolar and treated bipolar are going to look very different. And I think this confuses people as well. More often than not, the people talking about bipolar disorder are either A, not living with it. So they're they have no lived experience. They have research, medical degrees, therapy degrees, et cetera. So they, they know how to treat it, but they don't have any firsthand knowledge. Or the flip side, the people with the firsthand knowledge who are talking about it are in recovery. They're people like me who have been stable for 10 years. So people are looking at us like, okay, that must be what bipolar disorder looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what bipolar disorder in recovery looks like. It's much more difficult to get somebody who's not in recovery and try to get them to explain it because of course they're actively sick. So it would be very, very inappropriate to start picking up sick people out of psychiatric hospitals and saying, talk about bipolar disorder on this stage at this conference. I'd like to have you on the podcast while you're suicidal. This is all very, very dangerous, but it, it does allow misconceptions in the population to get out there because you're, you're not getting a full 360 degree view. That said, I'm, I'm going to do my best to explain that bipolar disorder in recovery is, is a lot like life. It, it's, it's just, it, it's monotonous. It's boring. You work so hard to get into recovery so that bipolar disorder doesn't really impact you. Now that said, I have to go to therapy. I have to you know be aware of my coping skills and my experiences and make sure I, I report accurately to my doctor and, 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 you know, get blood work. So my medication is good. And, you know, when I was 26 years old and I was standing in the pharmacy line to fill the prescription with a whole bunch of 60 year olds that, that felt a certain way. I was like, why am I so young? Like you, you here for your mom? No, me. Oh, <laughs> so you, you've got to deal with all of that. But by and large, it's just life. Now, untreated bipolar is the, the best way that I can describe it. And the thing that is probably most common for 
everyone, it's not 100%, but it's most common for everyone, is this described whiplash effect, this inability to control your own emotions. One day you're happy, the next day you're sad. And I'm using happy and sad on purpose, but actually one day you're God and the next day you're garbage. And this has a certain emotional toll on you to think that you're king of the world one day and then think, you know what, maybe death is an option for me. Uh, for me personally, and, and a lot of people have related to this, I felt like my mother would be happy if, if I died by suicide. I, I thought that she would be at my funeral thinking, hey, he made a good decision. Um, but then when I was up, I was like, oh, I, I am the best son ever. And my mom is so proud of me because I'm the greatest in the world. And she birthed me, right? She owes me because I'm so great. So that that's a that's a very weird thing to live in your head in, in a span of uh, a, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, or a few months, right? Just one minute she owes you. And the next minute she'd be glad if she were dead. Uh, you, she'd be glad if you, if I were dead, it, it's all of that. Just, it makes it difficult to relate to other people. It makes it difficult to understand what's going on in your own head. And then the same things feel different. So think of the things that we as humans are attracted to, right? So many of us are like, oh, you know, after a long day, there's nothing better than a good book sitting out on my patio, a, a glass of wine, and that feels good. And, and for most people, they, they rinse and repeat. They do this over and over again. But here's the thing. For somebody with bipolar disorder, untreated, that only feels good when you're in the middle. But when you're depressed, that doesn't work. So you don't want to do it. And of course, when you're manic, you can't sit still. So you can't really develop these routines that, that many of us, I, I would argue that every human has because your mind is different. That scenario that I just described only works if you're in one mood set. And because your moods are just so ridiculously out there, you can never develop those routines to self-soothe to cope, to make it from one moment to the next moment. And all humans really utilize these things to our advantages. And people with bipolar disorder often can't stay in the same mood state long enough to develop those things. So we're just erratic and all over the place. One thing I tell my oh, sorry. One thing I tell my patients with some regularity, maybe not this directly, but the message is how important self-soothing is. And when you can get to that point, that's a big plus. It sounds like with untreated bipolar disorders or disorder, you, you can't rely on that. It may be great one day, the next day that's just gone. That, that coping skill is no longer uh, within reach. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's fascinating that people don't realize that that coping skill might work when you're depressed, but it doesn't work when you're manic. That coping skill might work when you're in, in the middle, normal, stereotypical, feeling good, moderate. Be, you, you know, it's just, it, I, I, I can't stress enough that a person with untreated bipolar disorder, their spectrum is so huge that there is just no way it would be the literal equivalent of telling a police officer, hey, your beat is California. You are in charge of patrolling California. And the police officer is like, look, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm not making excuses. I'm doing the best I can. I'm working so hard, but I, I can't be in LA and Sacramento. They're, they're, they're 12 hours apart. And everybody's just like, ah, a police officer won't even get his shit together. I don't know what's wrong with them. And that's what it feels like. It's just, that's how wide the spectrum is. And what we're, what we're striving to do is, is get a small state, right? We, we want to get our moods down to like Ohio, because then we have better odds of, of keeping track of this. And we want to hire a few more people, right? It's just, I want to just get as much out of this analogy as humanly possible. How about, how, I like that analogy. How about Rhode Island? <laughs> Rhode Island is good. That That's the yeah. dream. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So moving on to something uh, a little bit more difficult, maybe, um, maybe not. You're you're used to talking about this. You you talk in the book about how you experience hypersexuality, and you also mentioned that you cheated on your wife. Those are very difficult things to write about, I imagine, and to talk about in a public setting. These are certainly not my finest moments. And, and I, I, I can't stress that enough, but 
it, it's not an uncommon scenario. Uh, hypersexuality, infidelity, making bad decisions, however they may look for you. People with untreated bipolar disorder have a lot of this in your in their past. And I really think that we do a, a very, very big disservice when we don't talk about them. I decided very early on that if I was going to publicly speak about bipolar disorder, I, I wasn't going to do this thing where I made myself the hero. I, I just, people can design their, their own influencer lives, however they want. It's their social media. It's their book. It's their podcast. They can do whatever they want. But for me, I was really attracted to the people in history who were deeply flawed. And I always give the example of Dr. King. I, I grew up feeling very badly. I, I did not, you know, again, untreated bipolar disorder, anxiety. I did not like myself. I thought of myself as a failure and every example that I'm given in school, when we're learning about history, there's these great people that did these great things. I couldn't relate to any of them. And then I started learning about Dr. King and he was unfaithful. He, he cheated on his wife. That's just a, a hard stop moment. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, cheating on your wife is, is wrong. It, it, it is a bad thing that he did. We, we don't have to debate it. It was a bad thing that he did. But all of his civil rights work, his, his speeches, his writings, they were all great. That's, that's indisputable. They were great and changed history. Those two things lived within him. At this point in my life, I could only see bad in me. And I thought, well, I, I can't, I, since I'm bad, I can't move forward because I can never be good. And then I started learning about Dr. King and his flaws. And I was like, well, now, wait a minute he was able to move forward. He was able to be great. He was able to do good things. There, there you go. I, and, and that gave me such a tremendous amount of hope. And I, I keep this in mind in everything that I do. If I only share my success, it, I, I'm doing a real big disservice to the world. And also hypersexuality is just, it's never ever discussed because uh, Americans, while we use sex to sell everything, we also don't talk about it in really any educational or meaningful way. And a lot of people really want to bury this. So when hypersexuality comes a call in people, they ride it out for the moment. And then they kind of do like the mania thing. They're like, yeah, it was great. And I'm like, yeah, was it be honest? Was it? And, and when, when I can get these private conversations, people are like, no, it's terrible. And like, then, then why are you perpetuating the, the, the lie that hypersexuality has some inherent value when you know for a fact it doesn't. And the answer is because they're embarrassed. So they, they want to flip the script to, well, hey, at least I got a lot of sex out of it. And I'm like, did you? No, I, I got a lot of masturbation out of it. I, I got I got a divorce out of it. I embarrassed my friends, my family, my parents out of it. And I want to make sure that that message gets out there strongly so that when people start to feel that they're having these symptoms, they tell, they, they fight through the embarrassment. They fight. It, it's embarrassing, especially when you're a, 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 think, think about it this way. You're a 21 year old woman. You're going to your doctor. Who's your dad's age, right? Or your, your parents age. And you're unmarried. You're still on your parents' insurance and hypersexuality is here. And you want to tell the doctor that you have hypersexuality and you know, your, your, your parents or your mom is sitting in the waiting room. So you decide not to say anything right? Because it's too embarrassing, right? I want to make sure that that person, when they make that decision, they can see a little further in the future and think about infidelity, think about STDs, think about unplanned pregnancies, think about high risk factors, et cetera. So that they think, you know, this moment is embarrassing. I can't make it not embarrassing. It's unfair that it's embarrassing to tell a doctor a symptom of an illness, but I, I didn't make the rules, right? It's, it, it's, it's, it's unfair. We need a whole podcast to talk about how ridiculous it is that it's unfair. But I want to make sure that in that moment, people think this is going to be God awful and embarrassing, but it's way better than what is potentially on the other side. If I say nothing. Yes, because chances are that person is suffering or if the question uh, or the, the debate within himself or her stuff wouldn't be going on. Should I tell the person? Should I not? So it's already a struggle, a big time conflict. So following uh, along the same line, you mentioned that um, people with, I mean, you just said it in different words, are liars and are manipulative. Um, 
I guess you feel that's pretty true across the board when you're in this state of being untreated, a bi- untreated bipolar person. I, I think bipolar disorder, it wrecks your brain, right? So we're going to have the, the most famous semantics argument that I can ever have. I basically feel like there's the Oxford comma, and then there's this semantics argument, right? Where people say, well, people with se- severe and persistent mental illness, people in psychosis, uh, delusions, people with bipolar disorder, et cetera, they're manipulative and they're liars, right? And, and, and I get it. I, I don't want to say that we're not because I, I think that's disingenuous and untrue. I think in our untreated state, we can be very manipulative and the things that we are saying are, are factually inaccurate, which of course is a lie. Here, here's, like I said, the most famous semantic arguments from our perspective. It's true. It's not false. We're not manipulating anyone. We're not lying. The intent is missing from our perspective with our mental illness, the way that our brain is misfiring Everything that we are doing and saying is reasonable and rational. And this is one of the hardest parts about living with mental illness. This is clearly a symptom. It is, remember, mental illness is, it's a brain disease. It's brain disorder. We're not thinking straight. We're crazy. We're nuts. We're whatever words you want to use. And yet we're also in complete control to manipulate and lie to people with no problems. Which is it? Are we in control of our faculties or not? Because if we're in control of them, then we're not mentally ill. If we're not in control of them, then we're not manipulating and lying. And this is a th- this is the back and forth problem that people living with bipolar disorder have. One moment we can't we you know we we need to be forcibly treated. We can't be in charge of our own care. We we need to be locked up. We need to be whatever because you know we're we're severely mentally ill and we just can't be trusted in society. And we need people to inter- intercede on our behalf because we're nuts right? Just we've heard it all. We've read it all. It's everywhere. But then in the exact same conversation, it's like, and can you believe he lied to grandma? Yeah. He just, he just lied to her and stole $1,000 from her. It's like, which is it, right? Are we so sick that we can't be held accountable that we need to be committed to a psychiatric hospital? Or did we hatch a plan to rip off grandma? I, I, I don't understand. Now that said, it's not okay to take money from grandma right? This is, and, and, and people's feelings are naturally hurt and bothered, right? Grandma needed that thousand dollars, right? I just, it's not okay what we did, but I don't think that we ever really think about these things correctly. I think we just have this, this idea in our head that anything you do wrong, you did maliciously and willfully and anything that you did that we don't like, uh, we can take away your rights and lock you up because after all, you're a crazy person. We, we need to move more towards the middle of that and understand that if we're really not in control of our own faculties because of serious and persistent mental illness, you know, things like bipolar disorder, then we also can't be held fully accountable for things like lying and manipulation. Now that said, I, again, just because you can't be held or sorry, but again, I want to make sure the audience hears that doesn't mean we get a pass. If I'm driving my car and and I pass out uh, because of, you know, low blood sugar and I run into the back of your car, that is the reason it's it. the, The accident is quote unquote, not my fault because I passed out, but it is my responsibility. I still have to fix your car. I still owe you an apology, but I'd like to believe that you'd be like, oh my God, he had low blood sugar and he passed out. I am so glad that he just came into a rolling stop in the back of my car and nobody got hurt. That's wow. That's really serious. But what we often get is, Hey, he had low blood sugar and he passed out. He did it on purpose. He's a liar and a manipulator. He wanted to hit the back of my car. And and that's what makes it very, very difficult for people with bipolar disorder to manage because people either think that we're, we're pathetic and, and, and need round the clock caregivers, or they think that we're criminal masterminds out to hurt people. There, there, there's just no middle view out there. Not, 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 not a big enough, not there's just understanding is lacking. Yeah. This is clearly an aside and it's a topic for another podcast for sure. But what just came to my mind as you were talking about bipolar disorder in this context is that there could well be a connection with people who commit mass shootings. I mean, it's horrible. There is no question about that. But do we know, do we get to the bottom of what's driving that person to have done something so horrific? Um, I think often maybe we don't get to that. And that's pretty bad since 
guns are so available in this country. But again, that's a that's a different podcast. Um, coming back to this one, uh, what do you you have you have at times felt very suicidal. In fact, I believe you said that there was a time, probably when you were fairly young, early on, when you just thought that was just a normal state uh, of, uh, you thought wanting to die was normal. Could you say something about that? I was born this way. This is how I was born. So I I always thought about suicide. I was always weighing the pros and cons of life or death. I I was born with bipolar disorder. It was, it was always in there rattling around somewhere doing something. And when you're born with something, you just think it's normal. I I didn't understand that this was abnormal thinking. I, 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 I thought that I was normal and that everybody else's brain worked exactly like my brain. So in the, to, to the specific question about suicidality, I, I thought everybody was weighing the pros and cons of life or death. I, I just, I just thought that was part of the human condition. When I looked at my mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, friends, teachers, everybody, I, I thought that everybody was just, you know, rolling through the, the pros and cons of living or dying. I just, that that's, that's just what I understood life to be. And nobody challenged that in me. Nobody sat me down and said, Hey, that's not normal because of course they can't read my mind. So they didn't know that I was thinking this way. And, and in, in fact, it would be pretty, pretty darn weird for somebody to look at their 12 year old and say, you know, I think it's weird that you're thinking about suicide. Well, I've given you no indication of that. And the reason I've given them no indication of that is because they never gave me any indication that they were thinking about that. So I thought this was one of those things that we hide. And, and I always use the example of, you know, I've never seen my mother go to the bathroom. I've just never done. I, I just haven't. But I, I got to tell you, I, I feel very confident to say that my mother does, in fact, use the restroom. Just because I've never witnessed it doesn't make it untrue. And that's how that's how I thought suicidality was. I thought it was one of those things that we didn't talk about, like, you know, using the restroom. I, I thought it was like that. And this persisted, it just kept growing and growing and growing, which of course allowed all of these feelings and symptoms, et cetera, to remain unchecked. I'd also like to remind the audience that my parents, they they punished the symptoms of bipolar disorder out of me. The the, the clear message every time I would have a symptom, which we didn't know were symptoms. I, I wanna make sure everybody understands that. But whenever I would do anything, my parents thought it was a behavioral issue. So all of my feelings, all of my thoughts, they were constantly telling me were bad and giving me a punishment. And I thought, okay, well, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm bad. I'm just bad. So we really didn't have a good conversation about emotions, about mental health, about mental illness, about suicidality, about how critical thinking works. It just wasn't something that existed in my family, in my schools, in, in, in anywhere that I went, everything was, uh, you know, men are tough and strong and stoic, and we need to do the things that we're supposed to do. And uh, I absorbed all of these messages and did the best I could to push down anything that went against the fact that I was strong and ready for anything, because I am a strong, strong man. And th- these were not protective factors in any way. And they allowed the suicidality to just really expand in my own mind. And I'm so fortunate that uh, I, I was able to get help before, before really acting on it. And uh, I, I think about that last one a lot. H- how did I think about suicide as far back as I can remember and, and didn't end up a, a, a victim? And uh, I, I've got no answer to that. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I want to go back to my last statement about uh, mass shootings, not to discuss that per se, but I think it came to my mind because there there is something somewhat related in your book that I was going to ask you. It is about your feelings about law enforcement and or public interactions with people with mental illness that end in death. Ask away. Well, I think that's what triggered the thought because you have something in your book about that. Um, I guess maybe it's the the lack of concern for the perpetrator or a lack of considering 
that mental health is likely to be driving something within the person. I, I always like to point the audience to this idea. Imagine if your house got robbed and you come home and all of your stuff is on the floor, your windows are broken out. I mean, just all of your stuff rifled through and you immediately call 911 because that is what you have been trained to do. And a general practitioner doctor shows up. And you're just like, okay, hey, general practitioner, doctor, you're here to help. And nobody thinks this is weird, right? It's just now, now people hearing this are like, why? Why is a general, where, where's the detective? Where's the police? Where's law enforcement? Where are the people who are trained to handle this? Oh yeah, we don't, we don't do that. We send the doctors. And not only do we send the doctor for home break-ins, but we give them very little training. We train them heavily in their core job, which is being a general practitioner, which is being a doctor. Uh, but we give them like, you know, 28 hours maybe 40 hours of training on this other thing, but they are the primary, right? Doctors are, and you're thinking this, this just sounds ridiculous. Okay. So let, let's flip it a little, right? If I am having a mental health crisis right now, my family would call 911 because that is what they were trained to do. And a police officer would show up. A police officer would show up to handle my medical condition and they would be given 28, 40 hours worth of training because it's not their core job, which of course is what they're heavily trained to do. And everybody thinks this is okay. Everybody's like, what? That, that seems like a good idea. So the people that you've put in charge of my care don't need trained. Nah, they're good. We're worried about violence. Listen, violence is a legitimate concern, but why did you stop there? I, I mean, just, just, yes, violence is a legitimate concern. Nobody's saying that it is not a legitimate concern, but one, it's not as big as a concern as people think it is. The majority of people who get a 911 called on them, they're in a corner crying, rocking back and forth, waving their hands, screaming that a dragon's trying to eat their brains. I, I just, they're, they're very docile. They're very terrified. They're very scared. And that of course scares other people. There, there's also public outbursts where somebody with psychosis thinks that a dragon is attacking the people at the local grocery store. So they're trying to save the people at the local grocery store. But of course the, the police untrained they show up and all they see is a person yelling and screaming and throwing cans and terrified people everywhere. So the next thing you know, violence, it's just violence everywhere. They try to grab the person who of course thinks that they're part of the dragon because of the hallucinations. So now they're attacking a police officer. It's not good. We can't attack police officers. I completely agree. This is how the whole thing just becomes a muddy quagmire immediately. And people are always quick to blame the police. And this is what makes me so sad. It's not the individual police officer's fault. If I take anyone and I do not train them and I put them in a situation, they're going to mess it up. Especially if I've trained them heavily to think a certain way that does not work in this situation. I just, could you imagine if I heavily trained someone to drive an automatic car and then in an emergency situation, I put them in a stick shift. Yeah, they, they'd rip out the clutch. They'd, they'd grind all the gears. They wouldn't be able to get the car moving. And when the bad outcome came, they'd blame the car. And then everybody's like, well, now wait a minute. You knew, you knew that you were going to need him to drive this car. Did it occur to you to train him how to drive a stick shift? Why? Well, we gave him 12 hours. We sent him through CIT, but largely we prepared him for the automatic. Okay, but you knew that he, he or she could be called upon to do this other thing. In fact, you decided that they were the ones to call if anything went wrong with the manual transmission stick shift car. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. But you heavily trained them for this other thing. And then they tried to drive the car like that. And then it, it, it screwed up and a bad thing happened. Yeah, I guess that car just didn't want to get better. And this just occurs over and over and over and over and over again. And what I hate the most is everybody grabs that individual police officer and like, aha, you hate the mentally ill. That's not what happened. They were not trained. We, we, we did not put cause into this. We did not put thought into this. And it's a distraction to blame individuals when this is the largest systemic problem uh, or not the largest, but it is a large systemic problem that we have. And we're not getting any closer to resolving this because this is super easy. All we have to do when the dust settles is blame the person with mental illness. And everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. And that leaves people like me extraordinarily vulnerable. And that's what worries me. That's what scares me.
Well, as, as a psychologist and psychoanalyst, it scares me too, because there's so many people who aren't treated who, who could be. They could be getting lots of help, but, and it doesn't look like lawmakers, et cetera, and, and other people are looking at this. They're, they're just bad. Uh, they just didn't learn to drive a, a shift. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was the first car I learned, so I get the difference. I know how to drive this. I, I love stick shifts. If my wife knew how to drive a stick shift, I would own a stick shift, but I, I, I can't in good conscience own a car that she can't drive. And I tried to teach her once and that went poorly. <laughs> it's pretty hard when people are used to an automatic. <laughs> I've tried to teach people too. My daughter's no, didn't work out. Uh, okay. I'm going to shift 180 here to you. Uh, this has to do with one of our email exchanges. Uh, you said, all that said, it, I, there may be some a version of it in the book, but you said, my imposter syndrome is great. I have little faith that where I am today will be where I am tomorrow and so forth. My favorite phrase is, this is still you, the winds of fortune are ever changing. So it sounds like you have a sense that being successful is very tenuous, as if it could vanish at any point. And I realize there are no givens in life, but it seems like you say a little bit more than that. It, it, it's so hard to explain this because it, it's pointed out to me constantly that there's a lot of people who would love to be me. And from, from so many different perspectives. Uh, from, hey, Gabe, you're happily married and you own a nice house, right? Forget about the mental health advocacy or being on a podcast or having a, a speaking career or anything like that. They're just like, you know, we're just looking at you and you, you you seem like a guy who's got good stuff, right? Your dog loves you. What more do you want? You go on vacation a couple of times a year and it, and, and yeah, I, I, I can, I can kind of see it. And then we get into my career and they're just like, look, dude, what do you want? You, you've got a, a really high end podcast. You, you work for the largest uh, uh, health website in the world who adore you. You, you got to go to uh, Oxford university and speak, you know, how difficult of an invitation that is to get, but all I can think over and over and over again is that moment I woke up in the psychiatric hospital. See, at one point in my life, I, I, I thought I had it all right, for two reasons. One, I was young, right? Youth creates this, right? It just it, young people think they're invincible. They, they just, when I was in my early twenties, forget about bipolar disorder for a second. When I was in my early twenties, I thought that I was invincible and that I was always going to be young and that the world was going to be great and fair and awesome, et cetera. And I did really well in my early twenties. I had a great job. I made good money. I was well-respected. I, I bought my first house at 20 years old. I was, I, I was doing really, 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 really well. I, and, and plus now you add the mania onto that, right? So, so now the mania and the grandiosity, not only am I doing uh, objectively very, very well, but now I've got an extra oomph, right? I've got an extra shot of success, like, like, like going through my soul and my blood and my body, right? I am the greatest ever. And then I woke up in a psychiatric hospital. I fell. I fell from the greatest heights imaginable. All I have in my brain every single day when I wake up is, don't get too high because if you fall, it will kill you this time. You are not young anymore. You, you, you do not have, I, I can't go through it again. That, that, that's really what it's, I, I can't fall again. I went from the greatest heights, both because I was very successful and because I had mania on top of it and landed in a psychiatric hospital, which is arguably one of the lowest places that you can land. I, I became a crazy person overnight. I went from a well-respected guy to I, a, a mental patient. I, I just, it just, I, I just, I, I want to say that again. I went from a well-respected white man to a mental patient. That is a people. They, they looked at me. It just, it hurt, and it took years to regain everything that I have now, and I, I don't think I can rebuild it again. So every time something happens, I'm just like, look. I, I don't want to enjoy it because if I enjoy it and get used to it, that means I'm going to need it. And if I need it and I lose it, I can't recover from it. So basically I just wake up every day and I decide that I'm basically blah because 
you know, I, I can survive a fall from blah, right? Who, who cares? Right. Just, you know, Hey, I'm blah. What happened? I fell. What'd you do? I got up. Blah isn't very high off the ground. And this is a very big protective factor. The negative to all of this is yeah. Yeah. It, it does mean that when I'm sitting at Oxford, I'm still blah. And I do not get to fully enjoy it in the same way that I think people think that I would be enjoying it. And uh, that's probably a bummer for me, but I'm not sure because, you know, if I fall, I can just get right back up. And I think that's a good thing for me. Well, given the givens and what you've been through, perhaps it is. I, I think it ties in with this question I asked you in an email exchange. And I thought that I crossed the line. Um, I said that on a, a series says that your book is funny. You make it. I mean, there are very funny parts to it. But it also, to me, felt, me personally, it felt sad. And it felt like it was, it, I felt like it was filled with pain. Um, you're, I think mainly because of your sense of failure, in spite of whatever you accomplish. It, it sounds like, you know, you could go over the moon, whatever a person might do on the moon, you could do it at all. It still wouldn't matter because of what you just what you just described. So it tugged at my heart and it made my eyes watery. That's the part that I, I thought that was just a little bit too much. But you said it wasn't too much. Um, so uh, I was ready to hear it was. Yes, Karen, you let's just not go there. But that's not what you said. You said you were glad that I was getting what you said. Do you remember that? I do. I do. I, it's, it's, first, I want to reassure you and the audience, it, it, it's never too much. If, if you're thinking it, it, it's worthy of conversation. And I, I, I think that uh, I just want to reassure you and the audience that it's not too much. I, I'm here willingly. Karen did not bring me against my will. I'm not chained in the studio. I'm, I'm ready. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what, what you talked more about in the next email was that you were glad I brought it up because this is what you, you want to convey the pain. And if you're not, if people aren't having some kind of visceral reaction, then perhaps you're not conveying the pain, but you conveyed it very well to me. So. Well, thank you, Karen. It was it's a good exchange. I, I, I'm very fond of saying in, in, in the book that there is something that will make everybody happy and something that will piss everybody off. And, and I think that's good because so often books, uh, podcasts, articles, just documentaries, they've got like one single goal in mind and mental illness is it's it, bipolar disorder. It, it's just, it's a quagmire. It, it's just, it, 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 in some ways it defies logic and if you read a book about it and it leads you to one singular location, it, I'm not saying that it's not a good book. It's just only a good book for whatever that singular location is. And as long as you're aware that it only took you to one spot, then, then yeah, it's a fine book. But so many people don't have that awareness. They're like, hey, I got a book on bipolar disorder and I read it and now I'm good. Right. But you only know what that book told you. And that book was really good at convincing you to have like hope and personal empowerment. And those are good things, but it doesn't do a good job of preparing you for setbacks and, uh, and uh, struggles and regret. And then that leaves you vulnerable because people are like, what? I read the book. I read the book and I'm ready. I'm hopeful. I'm I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm confident. I have hope. Woo! And then this leaves them very, very vulnerable for the fact that setbacks are part of recovery. Symptoms are part of the deal. And they're like, well, but I don't understand. I had hope. I did everything the book said. Yes, you did. You did everything that that book said because that book was focused on one thing. And, and again, I, I think that people tend to believe that bipolar disorder or anxiety or major depression or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder is, 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 is like, it's linear. They just need to learn like one thing and they're good. Uh, listen, I, I want people to have hope. I, I, I desperately need hope myself, but I also want people to be practical and I want people to have coping skills. And I want people to be aware that sometimes coping skills don't work. And I want people to be aware that sometimes things that you've done for 10 years stop working and you've got to be ready. 
I see all of these things as protective factors, but it absolutely should make you mad or make you cry or, or make you laugh or make you roll your eyes or annoy you. These are good emotions that I don't think we spend enough time stirring up in the self-help genre. I think we spend a lot of time puffing people up, giving them hope and confidence, but I, I think we need to spend a little more time saying, Hey, you fell down and scraped your knees. That's awesome. That's awesome. Lay there for a moment, roll over. When was the last time you laid on your back on a sidewalk and looked up at the sun at 50 years old? This is a great thing to do. Now get up, go order a new pair of jeans because you ripped them and get on with your life. It's cool. It's awesome. It's okay that you fell. We spend a lot of time teaching people how not to fall. And we spend a lot of time giving them the hope that they will never fall again. And I don't think we spend enough time on the fact that, look, you're going to fall. It's just going to happen. I, I'm, it's, I don't know what to tell you. I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no more happy about it than you are. So I, I'm glad that you got all that out of the book. And, and I, I, I think it shows that the book is working as I intended for you. doesn't work for everyone. It's not a good book for everyone, but I, I think it's a good book for some. And, and I, I, I am proud of it. Well, uh, I, I think it should be. It's, it's a very good book. What would you suggest to somebody who's identifying with some of the symptoms you've talked about and they, an untreated bipolar person? Yeah, if, if you think that you might have bipolar disorder or, or any mental health issue, talk to your doctor, make an appointment with a therapist, make an appointment with your general practitioner, make an appointment with a psychologist. I, I, it, it's not a one size fits all because unfortunately in the American healthcare system, everybody has different in, in insurance and, uh, 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 and even where you live, rural areas versus cities can determine it. But in a perfect world, if you suspect that you have bipolar disorder, you'd make an appointment with a psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist and you'd get it checked out. The, the one caveat that I want to put for everybody is remember, one, you don't need to know you have a mental health issue to make an appointment. You can just suspect it. That's okay. So many people are unwilling to make that appointment unless they know for a fact because they don't want to bother anyone. There's just all these reasons, right? It doesn't work that way. If you suspect that you have any mental health concern, make that appointment and get it checked out. There's really only two options at that point. One, you have it and you can get the, the right care and treatment and, and get ahead of it so that you can live your best life. Or two, you don't have it. The professional uh, looked you over and can reassure you that, hey, no, you're, you're good. You're, your emotions are normal and within the good range. And, and that's okay. Again, I cannot stress enough that so many people do not want to see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a therapist, a, a nurse practitioner. A they don't want to talk about mental health unless they are positive they have it. And that is, that is, I, I'm really trying very hard not to say that is utter nonsense, but imagine if we did that on the physical health side. Hey, I know I have symptoms and I don't feel well, but until I know what my diagnosis is going to be, I'm not going to go to the doctor. Nobody would say that. They would just be like, hey, doc, here are my symptoms. What's wrong with me? Do that. Do that. I strongly recommend it. It will potentially change your life or it will give you the reassurance that you need that, hey, you're doing just fine. I would just add one thing to that. Sometimes people don't click with the first person. If you don't click with the first person, then find somebody else because it, the first doctor may not work. But that's okay. There, there are others. It's, it's harder to find mental health uh, practitioners who are available, at least those who take insurance in this area of the East Coast. Maybe it isn't all over. But if you look, you can find someone. Your insurance company can help. There, there are ways to find a person who can help you. So that's my, uh, that, that's a statement I wanted to add it. So, Gabe, where can people learn more about you and what else would, is there anything else that, there's plenty we didn't cover, um, but is there anything else that you think is particularly important to say? 
I, I think the most important thing to understand is that no one should listen to a podcast and declare themselves an expert on anything. We, we have a, a real issue in this country of people watching one documentary, reading one book, watching one YouTube video, reading one website and thinking, hey, I've done my own research and I'm an expert. Don't fall into that trap, especially with something as big and as serious as bipolar disorder and, and mental illness and mental health issues. Be nimble, read, learn, just continue to grow and keep an open mind just because you don't like it or just because it sounds scary doesn't mean it's not true. And ultimately people who reject the information that they need, they're not hurting anyone but themselves. I understand comforting lies are always going to feel better than inconvenient truths, but inconvenient truths will get you to where you need to go to live your best life. And I do believe that at everyone's core, the, the, the people who watch the one documentary and believe everything that's true, we all have the same goal. We're just trying to get better and be happy. And I just, I want to implore you to keep an open mind, to keep reading, to keep asking questions and to be willing to change your opinions, change your mind as new data becomes available uh, or as you grow or learn or reach different stages of recovery. So again, the number one thing I want you to know, one podcast, not an expert hard stop. <laughs> okay. More information can be uh, gleaned at, is it gabehoward.com? Is that correct? Gabehoward.com. Yeah. You can get the book over there and I'll sign it and send you some, some stuff. You can also get it on Amazon. Now, if you get it on Amazon, I can't sign it and I can't send you any free stuff. So I, I highly recommend visiting gabehoward.com and grabbing the book from there. And, and I will be super happy and do a little happy dance when the order comes in. <laughs> okay, well, it was a great pleasure to um, have this interview with you, and I will talk with you soon.